continue our study through Romans. We're picking up um, here in chapter 2, verse 17. And we're going to read down through chapter 3 and verse 22. And it is a section picking up there as he has addressed uh, the O man, which is the code for uh, a Jewish man. He's already shown the Gentiles to be under sin. He then goes to prove also the Jew. This gospel that is for both the Jew first and the Greek uh, is needed. And it is needed in particular not merely to convert, but it is needed to strengthen. And it is not merely needed to, uh, to be written here uh, as sufficient to help us, but it must be proclaimed. It must be preached to strengthen the church, which is why Paul's coming to the Roman people. Here, this existing church would hear these words that we also are reading this morning. Verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and prove what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, And if you're sure you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. But what then? Are we Jews any better off? 
No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. Let's begin with a little bit of review. Foremost, the apostle writing this letter is an apostle who was at one time a Pharisee. The same word is used as he starts the letter speaking of the separation, a, a word that it is at least uh, not the identical word, but it is a word play on the word Pharisee, a setting apart. He says now he's not set apart for the law, as you might expect. He's set apart for the gospel. He says a few things specifically of that. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He's called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He goes into that gospel in helping us understand the triune nature of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit's actions to save humanity. And he moves quickly into the object of his love, and that is the very Gentiles there at Rome. The people are loved by God. He gives them the standard greeting of grace and peace. He moves to show that the first thing that needs to be said is gratitude. Because, if anything, this gospel is something that would make men grateful to God. He shows in the second section that the purpose why he's writing is not to come and found a a new church. But because there's an existing church there, he is coming so as to strengthen that body and also be mutually strengthened himself, encouraged, showing his being a sheep also in need of that strengthening. He says that the only way that's going to happen is is if he comes and preaches the gospel. And in preparation of him coming to preach the gospel to strengthen the church and be strengthened himself, he writes the letter. So everything that we discuss in Romans has to really be put in the context of why he's writing. He's not writing primarily to convert people. He's writing to strengthen the converted. He's showing to us that once you become a Christian, there's a need. There's a need for you, for me, 
and everyone throughout all generations to be strengthened by the preaching of the gospel in person. When God saves a people, He sends a man. When He strengthens people, He sends a man. He's in the business of bringing people to people and building real face-to-face relationships because after all, that's His desire for us. That He Himself would dwell with us and that we would dwell with Him. This is the essence of the whole biblical narrative. That God has desired to dwell with man. To be present with man. And therefore, we see it imitated or patterned in the ministry of the apostles. So as he says, the only way that they're going to strengthen the church is if you have the apostles coming to the churches and preaching in person. The only way those apostles will be strengthened is by being with God's people in person. But then he turns to verse 18 of the first chapter and he says, here's where you're not going to find the power and strength that I'm talking about. It's, it's man's gospel. And the only thing that you can find here is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They hold it back. They hold back what could actually save and strengthen humanity. And what has happened because the root of all that is ingratitude for the Creator who made them. The result is immediately many gods. The secondary result you see is many sins. And then soon after that, what you have is many laws. And that's not the way the Christian lives. But that's the way the world lives. Many gods. Many sins. Many laws. Endeavoring to solve the human problem. And these are those who don't have the law. These are those who don't have the revelation of Scripture before them to show them their sin. These are those who have to learn by the experience of life that they are indeed sinners. He turns to the Jew now. The word, oh man, as I said earlier, is a code name. It's for the Jewish man. If we don't uh, recognize that right away, by the time you get to the 17th verse, it explains who he's talking to. Now, when he's going into this section, he is having what is called a diatribe. And it is basically a meditation with uh, an imaginary person. Now, we might go to some weird places right now, but I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood. Um, There's a sense of sanity that people that talk to themselves are more sane than those who don't. But um, I don't also want to give the license to go too far with that. Uh, But what you you need to understand is meditation is not merely a silent reflection. It is talking through uh, the the objections and the difficulties and the 
uh, glories of the text. And that's what meditation means back in Psalm 1. Um, Here we see Paul is using this rhetorical device called a diatribe to uh, work out all the questions and the glories and the things that could be brought to the table here concerning especially the Jewish man who uh, is obviously in a position too of being under sin, and he's going to prove that. He begins, as we learned, uh, showing the shame of the, of the unbelieving Jew, the professing Jew, but yet the glory of the Christian. And um, we see that in the sense that there are some that are Gentiles who, in their hearts, uh, there's something different, and they begin to do That which the law requires. It's a little gem that shows up later in our text this morning. It shows up that these Gentiles will condemn, these believing Gentiles will condemn the unbelieving Jews. Kind of like you speak about where Jesus says in the Gospels about Nineveh will rise up against you unbelieving Jews and condemn you. You've been given so much. And Paul's saying the same thing here. He has proven that men have an adequate revelation in the world to condemn them, even if they don't have the law. And now he's moving to say, and you Jews who have the Word of God certainly are more culpable for having rejected Him. There's good news in all of this, so we're not going to go to a downward spiral. We're actually going in a trajectory towards hope, grace, glory, beauty, honor, joy that can't ever be taken away. But to get there, again, remind yourself, he's not talking to an actual person here. He's representing a people by this interaction with this uh, dialogue partner, as some have called it. And that's where we pick up in verse 17. They say, well, what do you title the message? It seems like we have to have a title. Maybe I'll change it by the time we post this thing. I'm going to call it Merry Christmas from the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's the title. Hopefully uh, be able to give some justice to, to why I call it that. So let's begin with the text. In the first section of the text, we find that there is a, a stunning rebuke of this man, an identification of who he actually is. He is one who calls himself a Jew. He relies on the law. He has privileges which are not sinful in themselves. In fact, if these things are true of you and me or him, they are something of commendation. They are something of praise. In fact, the word Jew means praise. It comes from the word uh, that of Judah, Judah's wealth. Judah is means his praise. And that you can see the word play by the end of the first section when it speaks about his praise is not from man, but from God. You see, the Jewish man knows this type of language. We have to explain that type of language. But the idea is that here, he says, you call yourself a Jew. You call yourself one who praises the Lord. And uh, nothing wrong with that if you are that. 
Nothing wrong with relying on um, of God and, and boasting in God in, it, in, in its innocent self. Uh, knowing God's will is certainly not a sin because in chapter 12 it'll say you should, you should endeavor to know the will of God by testing and discerning and not being conformed to the world and all those things, right? So it's not a sin to know that. He's not, he's not convicting the man of sin yet. He's simply saying, this is the, the subject. This is my dialogue partner. I want you to know who he is. He's, he's one who calls himself a Jew, one who praises God. He's one who relies on the law. He has a great esteem for that. He boasts in God. He knows his will. He proves what's excellent because he's instructed from the law. That's certainly commendable. You ought to be persuaded. You ought to be sure uh, that you're a guide to the blind if you are one. A light to those who are in darkness, which, by the way, in the, uh, in the Jewish writings, extra biblical, the idea of the Jew was, was understood. They would call themselves, the rabbis, the light of the world. That brings a whole new idea, at least what I discovered. I didn't know that. And it, it, it was a discovery for me how much uh, power comes when Jesus looks at them and says to the disciples, you're the light of the world. Or he says himself, he says, I'm the light of the world. And what he's, what he's doing there. Because they would call themselves the light of the world. Um, and so here, a light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher of children. No sin in that. It's a good thing, right? If you are that. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And God's law is good. Nothing wrong with God's law. All these things are commendable. And they are privileges given to foremost. The Jewish people ethnically have been given these privileges uh, indifference to the Gentiles at the time. But then, then things get a little rough. We begin to, if you would, have a, a little turbulence. We, we begin to experience a, a, a little bit of difficulty. We turn to verse 21 and it says, you teach others, do you teach yourself? Uh, the Greek here seems to affirm a positive response to that. So it's not necessarily in the first sentence a condemnation. They would agree to this and he would expect them to give an affirmative answer. Yeah, we do teach ourselves. We do uh, do that, Paul. Well, but then it turns, when, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? Um, it gets a little bit more difficult here because the Jews, with a little bit of legwork going to the book of Acts around chapter 20, I believe, there's some indication um, that there was a, a movement under Claudius at the time that ejected many Jews from Rome. And they were having to go into exile around. And this would put pressure on them in having to relocate. And that's part of the reason why the church is being prepared to deal with the Jew who boasts in the law because they're going to be returning. And they're going to show up in the churches of that area of Rome and there's no reason to believe that there were a lot of churches in Rome. Most likely this was a, a body. A large body, it seems. But whatever the case is, the, the background is fascinating that when he's saying these things, it's most convincing to me that there are literal issues. That they literally would be guilty of stealing. They may have a way to justify it. But... When he says this, uh, 
the Gentiles would know, yeah, the Jews, there's some meandering about things here. And it really gets real when we get to the temple robbing. But let me cover the text. It says, you say that you must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Uh, the robbing of temple there is, the again, the most difficult. It's, uh, but there are historical records indicating that this was actually literally taking place. It was being um, indirectly and directly uh, by the Jews. So it would be convicting. And he says, you who boast in the law, he says, you're guilty. You dishonor God by breaking the law. So all the privileges of what you are, you say you are, and, and what you do become null, nullified, empty, because you don't practice it. And the center of this first section of the text is, is a quote that it says, as it is written, and there's some debate about where this quote comes from, but the, the common tradition is Isaiah 52, um, but the more accurate probably reference is in Ezekiel 36. Isaiah 52 refers to the Assyrians who were blaspheming, not the Jews. And Ezekiel 36 gives a more clear, clearer picture of this and very more direct reference. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And, and what you need to understand about blasphemy here is it is the charge that put Jesus on the cross. That means the Jew would understand this charge for not practicing what they claimed to be and they claimed to do made them guilty of a crime deserving of death. Paul is very intent on looking at salvation not in the sense of getting people saved. They already are in Rome here. He's talking in terms of salvation in the present tense, coming out from under the power of sin, and salvation mainly, which is what the Bible mainly speaks of, in the future tense, when you have to stand at the bar of God's justice and face the wrath of God. And the question is, where will you hide? And He has now told them they have been uncovered They can't hide. They know they're guilty. And the Gentiles see it plainly. God's name is blasphemed there. This whole section too is building up to what we'll see later in the book of Romans. The stirring up of jealousy as the Gentile church is born. The stirring up of the Jews to jealousy they might believe. Of course, Paul's a Jew who believes. Other Jews of the apostles uh, believe. But this would be something of a, of a matter to stir them up to jealousy because the Gentiles uh, are able to see this because the Gentiles here are being converted. It turns and it says, okay, so you're hiding behind the Scriptures and the knowledge of the Scriptures and the teaching of the Scriptures. You're doing all that and you can't hide there. And he turns and he says, you can't hide behind circumcision either. You can't hide behind that. Um, for, for broad purposes, I'll say you, you can't hide behind the sacraments, the things that make you belong in, in, 
terms we may understand. And so circumcision was the thing that marked their flesh and showed the promise of the one who would come and bleed and die on a cross. And it is the circumcision of Christ that is the only, he's the only one in the flesh who has ever perfectly kept the law. Who has fulfilled circumcision. And so he turns to these Jews and he's saying, circumcision has value if you obey the law. A couple things going on here. And that is, nowhere in the Bible is it ever saying if you are of Jewish descent to deny your Jewishness. That's not it. It's not the the thing. It's not saying uh, deny you're Jewish no more than you would be saying denying you're Italian or denying you're Irish or denying whatever. He's not, he made nations. He made borders. He made those things. And He sovereignly rules them still. The issue, the issue here is not taking the Jew and removing his identity. The issue is saying it has value if you obey the law. But obviously we've proven you don't obey the law you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision because circumcision wasn't about simply marking your flesh. It was about what it would be fulfilled in in the future. It, was a, it showed covenant promise that was fulfilled in Christ. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And here's important. Then he who is physically, literally by birth, same word used back in 14. By nature. By nature, I meant. Uncircumcised. He's by nature uncircumcised. He's by nature a Gentile. But he keeps the law. How do you explain that? Paul's indicating there are people who their hearts have been changed. We know it is a new covenant change by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's down in verse 29, he's saying it happens by the Spirit. Yes, you could translate it in the Spirit in the sense it has to go within. But listen, how does it go within? It has to go in within by God who made you. It has to happen within by not something man can do. It has to happen within by someone who knows the recesses of our hearts. It has to be the work of the this Holy Spirit to do this thing. And he's giving, yes, hypothetical, but it points to a a spiritual truth. And that is, circumcision was not about simply making it out here different. It was about grace working in here to make us new. And when you you get that, that's Christianity, right? If, if If you don't get that, you not understand Christianity. Christianity is not some just merely external religion doing a bunch of external things while not practicing them. And it's not just practicing them and saying Jesus is Lord and doing things that are of lordship without loving the Lord. It's both loving the Lord and doing the things He commands. That's Christianity. No one is... I skipped, uh, then he who is physically uncircumcised keeps the law uh, will condemn you. See that idea? See that idea of like Nineveh rising up in judgment to condemn those who have so much more before them? You who have the written code and you have circumcision, but you break the law. You have all these helps, but you break the law. 
For no one's a Jew merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the led by the letter. And then it closes. His praise is not for men, but from God. You could translate it a couple ways. One, in the sense, his praise, even the ability to worship, comes now from God. Or, or most likely what this means is, on the day of judgment, when you stand before God, the commendation will come from God. It won't be because what you've said about yourself. It won't be because what others said about you. It'll be as beautiful as the eulogy that maybe someone could come up with about all the good you've done in your life. There is nothing compared to the day of judgment when we stand in having been in union with Christ and, and, and we, hear, we hear the welcome and not the wrath of God because not because we're good, but because we're in Christ. And this is just preparation. I would have loved to sit in the church when Paul showed up and preached the substance of all this. Some have said, this is kind of like probably sitting in the hall of Tyrannus when Paul lectured throughout this kind of talk. This is just preparation to appreciate the preaching of the Gospel. And if this is just the preparation, imagine what it's going to be like to be in the presence of the one who came 2,000 years ago, laid in a cradle, lived a perfect life, died a sufficient death in our place, and rose again from the grave. Imagine that. Well, obvious questions come about, right? The Jew, the dialogue partner here, obviously has questions that come to mind. Paul's got this character in his mind, and he's, the character begins to say, what advantage is it then to be a Jew? What value is it to have been circumcised? It might be equivalent to us saying, you know, what, what advantage is it to be in church uh, if, if what you're telling us is we are lost. What, is there any advantage? Paul says in every way. He says, well, do, you, do you not realize what I've just said? You have the Word of God to tell you of your sin. While the whole Gentile world that we've just discussed is blind. They don't have the written word. They have to learn by their living it. Where you get a book, the scripture is the oracles of God before you to instruct you so you save yourself the pain of trying to do what he has forbidden ever to do, and that is to trust in yourselves. You've been given 
an absolute perfect manual. It's not like you've been handed, I'll put it in contemporary terms, though it sounds a little foolish, but it works this time of year. It's not like you've been handed this box of some toy you've got to put together in a million pieces. No instructions. Or let's step it up a little bit. You got a little bold and ordered the Ikea version. Everybody knows what that means. And it's written in Swedish. It's not even like... These people were given the Word in their language. They were specially chosen for it. They did not have to live it by experience. They could, if they so uh, submitted to God's ordinance, they could actually have saved themselves the pain of living a life lost and hopeless and a whole lot better to live by learning than to have to live by the experience of mistakes. So he says much in every way the Jews were entrusted to the oracles of God. And then the question is what if some were unfaithful? I mean is that going to do anything? No, he says does their faith nullify the faithfulness of God. He begins to go in justifying God. He begins to really indicate to this dialogue partner that when you're having such questions, you're really lacking a fear of God. God is justified in judging all humanity for their sin guilt, Jew and Gentile. And he says, by no means, let God be true and everyone, though everyone were a liar. And then what does he quote? He quotes David's psalm at his lowest point of life. Psalm 51 could have considered his highest point because it's repentance, but but it's a result of his lowest point because his sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Bathsheba's husband, he himself deserves death at this point. He's crying out to God. And in his cry, he utters that you may be justified your word with your words and prevail when you're judged, meaning you are justified, God, in judging me. He, Paul takes David's quote here, and I think with intention. A day, David, a man after God's own heart, to justify God's judging of the world. He's saying, he's saying to the Jew, the old man, he's saying, if God can, ju- can justifiably judge the king of Israel, who are you, old man? Let's take it further as Christian. If God put His Son, the true David, on a cross for the sins of His people. Who are you, O Christian? But if our unrighteousness serves to share the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way by no means for them 
then how could God judge the world? He's just getting along the same point, but he does introduce a new thought. And the new thought is, is this idea of let's sin so grace can abound. He's going to visit that later around chapter 6 through 8. If my lie bounds, if my lie, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not evil? Do evil that good may come. In other words, there's just people that this idea that you could just be thinking along these lines, it really doesn't matter what you do, but it does. He's saying it really does matter that you were to these Jews, born Jews, and have circumcision. You are tremendously privileged. As some people slanderously charge Paul saying that it doesn't matter, he's saying no, their condemnation is just. And in a sense, he's telling this dialogue partner, your condemnation is just too. If you think that way. And then he goes in and he quotes. And he almost says the opposite, right? Well, he does say the opposite. He said, okay, what's the advantage in every way? You got the word, right? And then he turns around and says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? He says, no, not at all. And he says, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He's reviewing, kind of like we're reviewing what he's written. He's reviewing and saying back that what I said back here, chapter 1, Gentiles are guilty. What I'm saying here, the Jews are guilty. We've charged everybody's under sin and God's justified to judge all. And he quotes, it's not as important that you know where all the quotes come from, but they do come from the Psalms. They come from Proverbs, they come from Isaiah. Maybe missing a source there. But, but the idea is they come from various parts of the 66 books of the Bible. And they, they really teach one lesson. And that is man from the, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet is absolutely corrupt and simple. There's nothing in man to save man. And you notice this when it says none is righteous. No, none, no, not one, no one, no one, all turned aside. Together, no one, not even one. You think he's making a point? There's nobody, nobody, no human being at all, anywhere, and even together that can save humanity. He's making it very clear that the power to save, strengthen, and help one stand before the wrath of God that's due to all humanity is not going to be because you hide in humanity. It's going to have to be that you hide in something else, in someone else. He starts with the issue of our understanding or our minds or our hearts, and then he moves to our, our tongues, what we speak, and, and uh, then he moves down to our feet where we go and what we do. He's saying everything about us. Everything about, well, about this Jewish man, this Jewish dialogue partner is sinful and about humanity is sinful. All Jews and Greeks are under sin, and under sin here more, most plainly means they're under, under that guilt. 
Some, some want to emphasize the power. It could be here, but it's most clearly under the guilt that would bring you to have to face the wrath of God. And then he concludes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. So those who are under the law, obviously you're, you're Jewish people, and by works of the law, no human being, he extends it, no human being by works of the law will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law, the word, the oracles, and by the way, when we talk the law, it's not just the Ten Commandments. He's speaking, he speaks of the law and prophets as the whole Old Testament. They had it all. And, and it also is stressed because he quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from writings. He quotes from the prophets. So when he's thinking in that mind, he's thinking more broadly than we may think. Not just the Pentateuch. Not just Ten Commandments. The whole, the whole Old Testament oracles of God. So that would be completely, completely, completely hopeless bad news right now, right? But here, here's what makes it different to be Christian. We have, but now, we have a utter contrast in a dark, dismal world that has no hope, full of guilt, rightly to be judged by God, but yet God Himself enters in and you have the but now. You have in the Christmas story and the message and the account, you have the Holy Spirit coming and bringing a conception miraculously in the womb of a virgin that would give birth to a son, our Lord and God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who would by his active righteousness fulfill the law by his passive would suffer the death. And we see in all of it, he fulfills Perfect righteousness. And therefore he declares the the only place you can hide is in Christ Jesus. You can't hide, as it said here in the beginning, you cannot hide and and, and find this a faithful refuge to hide in the Scriptures and the knowledge of the Scriptures and the things that you do with the Scriptures because it did not hide or provide an adequate refuge for the Jews. And you cannot hide in the sacraments. You cannot hide in the signs. You cannot hide in the things that, that, that show in the outward that you belong. The only place that humanity can ever hide and find refuge that is safe from the wrath of God on the final day is in Christ alone. That's the message. That is Merry Christmas from the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The righteousness of God has been manifested. Perfect tense verb there. This is where the Greek matters because manifested means it has set up a condition whereby, and most commentators are going to set forth this statement, it is through the continual preaching of this righteousness ongoing that it is continually being manifested to the world. But now, the righteousness of God. And what is that righteousness? It it is most, most definitely defined in the sense it's not the righteousness of man. It's not man's righteousness. This is God's righteousness. This is not man's righteousness that he puts on by himself. This is a righteousness that comes down that he has put on you. And he has put a robe of righteousness on all you who believe. For it goes on and says... 
the righteousness of God has been manifested. Let me explain a few things between getting there. Apart from the law, meaning apart from, that defines not man's righteousness, apart from what man does, apart from what man knows, apart from those things, apart from all that fulfillment. Uh, so that every, so, so that we read, so that every, um, I'm sorry, although the law and God, the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, it's important for us to understand this but now and manifestation is not new. It's just public. It's now not new because it's always been proclaimed. It was proclaimed to Abraham. Abraham knew the gospel. Adam and Eve knew the gospel when it was proclaimed in Genesis 3.15. It's not new, but it's now public. It's now manifested in the preaching. Now, now it is through the world. The Gentiles, by large number, are coming in. It is now made fully public to the world. And by the works here of the law, they're, they're not works that can save by man. So the righteousness of God, in verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, one commentator, I think, put it well, and I can't remember which one it was, but I'll say this. It's the title of the gospel. If you were to put the, the gospel in a title, it could be this. In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's, that's just a, the gospel. Um, so why is it? Well, we see here the righteousness of God being that which is given to us that we wear as a robe as if you will, like the wedding feast picture, as we wear as a robe that's put on us, that covers us. It is a righteousness that its duration, its, its length throughout time will never end. If there's an eternity of hell for those who infinitely sin against God, there is an eternity of blessedness for all who put on this robe that is given to them by God. This this. Righteousness is adequate for, for all who will trust in Him, Jew and Gentile. Though none have room to boast in their righteousness, they can only boast in God if He's given them their, His righteousness and, and all, all a reception of this. Because why? Because Christ lived in complete conformity to the law. And He fulfilled the bloody symbol of circumcision for us. And He is imputed now. He has given to us His righteousness so that in Him... So, what did we put on Him? We put our sin... A robe of sin! We put it on Christ. And He put a robe of righteousness on us. And that righteousness is a, a, a forever righteousness. It's not any time... In receiving that righteousness, you, you can ever lose this refuge. This, this is a peace that lasts forever. This is a joy and gratitude that stirs up in you forever. This is this length and breadth and depth and height we could spend eternity on knowing and perhaps we will. What a glorious righteousness. It's not the same as justification. Justification was mentioned above. It's not, we're not talking justification. Righteous, this is the righteousness that justifies. Difference. Because our Roman Catholic friends want to teach 
that you have to have some other type of righteousness, a method of justification. This is a righteousness that is given that will justify you. This is not um, a righteousness that is faith. This is a righteousness received through faith. Meaning that you don't put your faith in your faith. Christ. Let us be absolutely clear on this Christmas Eve. Christ is our righteousness. And it is through faith we receive His righteousness and are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We have a lot of working out of this doctrine, so we don't have to, brains may be turning, wheels turn. It's okay. It's okay. He's preparing them so that when he stands before this people, they are going to be ecstatic to hear him preach this gospel in person. And, and it's very important, they have got to be confident enough when their Jewish friends come amongst them who know the scriptures. They've got to be confident enough to know though they have a great privilege and though they claim to be able to teach wonderful things and though they have the mark of circumcision, they have the same need to be strengthened and to be hidden by the same righteousness that they themselves possess already in Christ Jesus. Oh, dear Christian, you never, ever need to be intimidated by the so-called wisdom of this world, the power of this world, or the wealth of this world. Jeremiah said it so clearly, let the wise man not boast in his wisdom, let the mighty not boast in his power, not the rich boast in his wealth. Let him boast, let him boast that he knows me. And if you read down 9, 23 through 26 of Jeremiah, same context. He says, he will judge those who are circumcised in flesh, but not in heart. Showing this is not new news. It's just really good news. And it's publicly manifested now for the purpose of preaching in person to strengthen believers and congregations throughout the world, throughout all time. It is a sufficient refuge for all. What a gift the Holy Spirit's given us. What a gift He has held out to us. What a gift He has sent to us in sending to us this Word, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, no distinction. So it doesn't just say, okay, Gentiles, that you have this, but any can have this. Jew or Gentile. So even the old man, even the man who has all the privileges, even the man who is boasting about what he taught, even the man who's worthy of death, that is, he has been a cause of blasphemy among the world, among the Gentiles, he's saying, even that man has this refuge to run to. That's going to be a whole lot easier to come in and preach to a group of people when they've been prepared to appreciate that gospel. Because he's going to show up and there's going to be Jews there and Gentiles there 
And He's going to continue to be part of the manifestation that we're part of today, manifesting the righteousness of God that is received through faith and that is found only in union with Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas from the Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas from the third person of the Trinity. That's what Scripture is. It's the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit wrote this. This is not just Paul. If this is just a man's word, we got maybe some things to say and admire. But if this is the Spirit's word, then it does demand obedience. It demands that, hey, are you privileged? I'm not talking in the worldly sense. I'm saying, are you privileged? Do you have a Bible? Do you have the Word of God to show you your sin? To show when you're doing wrong and, and you're convicted by Do you have that before you? So, yeah, we all do. Do we teach others? Yeah, we do. Do we try to teach ourselves? I think we do. What a responsibility. Let's not err, church. Let's not err on the side that, that we, would, uh, we, would, we would be like this man whom Paul warns, who Paul lays forth in this text so that we would be equipped to be able to bring them to know this truth. Let's not be, let's not be like those who trust and try to hide in our scriptural knowledge. And let's not be those who, who try to hide in, in what makes us belong to some organization or, or something, church or whatever. You know, the boast we have on this Christmas Eve is we have a refuge in Christ. It's what brings us together. It, it's what unites us. See, if, if you're not united to Christ, then it, it's impossible to be united to one another. If you're not united to Christ, it's impossible to share in the joy and gratitude for the Creator. Because it's always you trying to do, you trying to teach, you trying to belong. What Christ offers is complete, extensive, eternal, forever belonging and hope and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what He offers. What a fool we would be. How much folly we would involve if we didn't, if we settle for a lesser refuge. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't know the scriptures, you should not teach the scriptures, and you should not put on the sacraments and belong to a church. You should. But it's all consequential and it all finds its meaning foremost by being in Christ. So church, if you're in Christ, no religious man in the world has anything on you. Not when Christ is with you. Not when Christ is in you. Not when you have been united to Christ. What, what a gift from the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to deliver this message.
May we not be guilty of teaching on this day and not practicing and not and wearing all the right things, but not <clears throat> having in our hearts the right attitude. But we come and we confess to you it is it's only because of Christ we have the hope and joy that we celebrate. We desire that we would do it well. We desire it be enjoyed today. We pray your blessing will be upon your people. And as we come to this table to remember what Christ has done in perfect conformity to the law and how he has bled and died for us. And he covers our sin. Father, let us rejoice as we come together. All who in good conscience can come and to this table in union, having been put in union with Christ by faith in Him alone. We ask You to bless now. Those who don't know You, if they, if they don't know You, Lord, we just pray they would contemplate this time, they would pray, they would seek You, they would run to You now. But we know You wrote this. You, you wrote this for believers to be prepared, to be strengthened by ongoing gospel ministry. Thank you. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. May you come.